From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we have Melody Barnes. She's truly an exceptional individual and talent. In the Obama administration, she served as Assistant to the President and Director of White House Domestic Policy from 2009 to 2012. Prior to that role, she was on President Obama's transition team and the campaign in senior domestic policy roles. She's a skilled lawyer in both private practice, and she also had stints for Senator Ted Kennedy and other lions on the Hill. Today, we're going to speak about the issue of policy development in a presidential transition. So, Melody, thanks for joining. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. So you've had this spectacular career, meteoric rise, and really been in the room where it happens on every occasion. So, But you grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I guess you started getting a kind of itch for politics when you were selling cupcakes, I read somewhere. <laughs> yes, I sold cupcakes for George McGovern in 1972. Thank goodness that wasn't the trajectory of my winning streak. Um, but uh, <laughs> yes, that was my very first foray into elections and electoral politics. And I think it, it was just a factor of being engaged and my parents being engaged and being in a community, a school where people talked about, thought about those issues. And my love for history, my fascination for government and even at that early age, the recognition that this was something really important that we do in the United States. So did you imagine when you were selling cupcakes that you would rise to be one of the senior people in the White House? <laughs> yeah, I saw it as the beginning of, of, of fundraising. Um, no, I, I wouldn't have imagined that. And not only do I think eight-year-old Melody wouldn't have imagined that, I don't think 28 or 38-year-old Melody would have imagined that. A lot of people do a fantastic job of planning their careers 10, 15, 20 years ahead. I, and perhaps I should be embarrassed by this, but I'm not one of those people. Instead, what guided me and guided my career was a passion for the kind of work that I was doing, for the issues, and quite frankly, the ability to be at tables where those that couldn't be at those tables I could be there to represent them. I could be there to be voice, to bring experience, to bring compassion. And as I worked in government over the years, to bring growing expertise to try and make America a better place. That's what drove my career. And for, for our listeners, uh, you can't see this, but uh, Melody is African-American and she's one of the most senior African-American women ever to serve in the White House in the history of the United States. So she's broken a ton of barriers, and I suspect that she's going to continue to uh, to plow the way. So let's, let's go to the issue of transition. So you helped design and develop candidate Obama's domestic policy platform. Then you moved to the transition, and you helped to run domestic policy during the transition. So what happens between the shift between the campaign and that transition with respect to policy development? Well, my role when I joined the campaign in July of 2008 
was twofold from the beginning. I spent part of my time on the road campaigning, which I ended up loving. I didn't think that I would and certainly hadn't planned for that, but I did. I enjoyed engaging with people. And then I spent the other part of my time based in Washington, D.C., working with John Podesta, Chris Liu, and others to do pre-transition planning. And we started to focus on agency review teams, those teams, those individuals that would go into departments and agencies to get a lay of the land after the election. And in those 70 plus days between the election and the inauguration. And knowing that their work and the work of others in the pre-transition world would start to shape policy development. During that summer, we started to see the economy just start to swirl around the drain. And there was a recognition that that was going to be a significant issue for then candidate Obama, should he become president elect Obama, even before becoming president Obama, that he would have to take on. And the, the elements of the campaign and the pre-transition had to start to focus on those issues. You know, as with any campaign, cam- candidates make promises, but recognizing that there was an emergency that was going to be in our hands People had to begin to think about that so that during the transition, we could very, very quickly pivot to addressing those issues. And I give John Podesta great credit for starting to think about that and how the transition should be set up to allow for that. So pre-election, the campaign articulates policy, puts out policy positions. The transition is working off to the side, not a lot of outside engagement with groups, you know, just kind of head down preparing. Then the day after the race is declared, let's say that because this race was declared a little later than your race, what do you do? Like, what's the transition team doing on policy? Are you starting to say, all right, here are the five executive orders we want to put out on day one. Here's the sequence of the policy initiatives we want to push. What happens the day after the election with policy? Right. And and the answer, the short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> uh, so immediately, the transition begins to think about what the president is going to do on the day that he is inaugurated or she is inaugurated, and then in the week, that first week. And for better or for worse, America has become fixated on the first 100 days and knowing that that whether you want it to be or not that the country pundits the media will be focused on that there's also kind of some white noise in the background saying you've got to think about that period of time so executive orders you begin to look at what's happening as a matter of regulation that's part of the importance of the agency review teams uh, what's been done by a prior administration that's done, done, and done, but also what might be overturned because of of the law and, and is a regulation that a new and incoming administration has strong disagreement with. There's also focus on litigation. The government never sleeps. So litigation in this instance that was started by the Trump administration, that the Biden administration has to determine if their posture is going to change or could change. 
on that. So all of those issues, in addition to what's going to happen on Capitol Hill, what legislation will be the first pieces of legislation that a new administration wants to push for, um, what things were left in the hopper uh, that still have to happen uh, once the, the inauguration takes place. So it really is three-dimensional chess when uh, a new administration walks in the door, which is why those days between the election and the inauguration are so important. You mentioned the first 100 days. You know, One of the things that the partnership believes, and we've articulated, is actually the 100 days before inauguration are just as important as the 100 days after, because if you don't do a good job planning in the 100 days before, the 100 days after are not going to go smoothly. You're exactly right. So President Obama, when he was candidate Obama, campaigned on a number of big ideas, economic recovery, healthcare, climate change, et cetera. But during the transition, and I've talked to John Podesta about this quite a bit, you all had to choose a sequence because Congress can't digest everything at one time. We learned that in the Carter podcast that the Carter administration threw everything up to the hill at once and it didn't work well. So how did you choose which issues were to go in which sequence? And in hindsight, did you make the right choice? Uh, again, you're, you're exactly right about that. I, I think about Congress. Well, I think about our system of government. And in spite of the impatience that most people feel, I know I have felt it, our government was designed to work slowly. So it, it can't digest lots and lots of things at the same time. And I think about my colleague, Phil Shalero, who led legislative affairs both during the transition and the first couple of years of the Obama administration. And Phil would walk around with a three by five index card. And on that card, he had mapped out what had to happen when and how so that we could best utilize Congress's time and, and schedule to move as many things as we possibly could. And so, for example, for the Obama administration, the reauthorization of the Children's Health Insurance Program was something that happened very quickly. Um, there, there's also space, we found space to do some things that were consistent with a part of President-elect Obama's agenda, part of candidate Obama's set of promises that we felt would be important um, and that we also knew could get bipartisan support. So, for example, the what became known as the Edward and Kennedy Serve America Act, which focused on national service. And people may say, well, why national service in a time of economic emergency? But many of the things that happened through AmeriCorps and in national service um, could help the country deal with and address some of those issues. So your, your question, did we make the right decisions? I believe that we made a number of very smart decisions. One, to move very, very quickly on issues facing the economy. Even President-elect Obama, before he took oath of office, had to expend political capital on some of the economic issues and work in concert with the Bush administration. But the planning for a stimulus bill that we believed we could move very quickly that would be important substantively and also send important signals. The last thing I, I'll say is that I know people, some of them, that one of them I'm married to, often questioned why this versus that. Why not 
do a big push on immigration coming out of the blocks? Why so big uh, and comprehensive a healthcare bill right out of the blocks? And those were decisions that were made both based on substance, uh, based on timing, the fact that we believed we had political capital that we could spend, that the nation had been focused on the on the issue of healthcare, and that that also was wrapped up in the issue of the economy, given that healthcare takes up about 17% of American GDP. So we were thinking about all of those issues, the politics, the substance, and the signals that they were sending as those kinds of decisions were being made. Now, John Podesta, who you know did a fantastic job on the transition, and I think except for Vice President Cheney, has more transition experience than any other living human, this idea of developing councils or kind of mock councils during the transition so that the national security team would work together on policy development. You led a process on domestic policy development. Um, And he basically said that was a good idea to kind of create muscle memory and process practice so that when you moved into the White House, you were ready. And so how did that work? And was that a good idea? It worked extremely well. And first of all, you're right about John. I've worked with John now for I don't, since 2003, and he is, uh, I think, a brilliant student of government and understanding what will work based on all of the experiences he's had, both on the Hill and in, in White Houses. And he was right about creating that muscle memory. And I didn't realize it at the time. This was my first time going into a White House. And, but when I think back to the transition and the way we began to operate, the process that was being put in place, my husband often laughs and says, I I never knew process um, could be a noun and a verb, but you know, you run a process um, and that's what has to happen in the White House. And we were starting to do that, to build those relationships, to understand and build not only relationships with one another, but to the rest of government, to the Office of Management and Budget, for example. And that was important, particularly in a moment when we were in crisis, to be able to move as quickly as we possibly could once we walked through the doors of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And we had to do it because we needed, we couldn't wait, you know, go to inaugural balls, walk in the White House on January 21st and say, well, what are we going to (laughs) do? There was too much to be done and too many people, the American public that were counting on us. So starting that process in the transition was not only smart, but it was critical. During the pre-election transition process, basically the transition team is totally in a bunker. They don't want to talk to people. They don't want to talk to lobbyists. They don't want to talk to interest groups. They just are shut off. Okay. Post-election, that process starts to open up. And there is just this giant spigot of input that is coiled and ready to go. Every lobbying group, every advocacy group, every friend from Melody's Cupcake Stand I want to tell you what the president of the United States should do. So how do you manage that process, you know, and how do you deal with just the time management? I'll just give you a little anecdote. I I was speaking last night with one of the top people on the Biden transition. 
not mention the person's name, who said, I've been in senior roles in the White House. I've been in senior roles in the private sector. If I ran like at 100x in the White House and 60x in the private sector, the transition is like 180x, just the, the pace and the intensity. So how, do you, how did you manage the input process from different groups, some of whom you wanted to hear from, some of whom you didn't want to hear from? Well, you're exactly right that it is intense. And as I've told people over the course of the last several months who have said, hey, we want to send this memo, we want to send these names, how do we do this? And I've said to people, for the transition, it feels as though several trucks back up to the transition front door and unload reports, documents, and lists of names. I mean, they just come spilling out. Like you said, there's a spigot. And at the same time, the transition has objectives that they have to achieve. I mean, in this instance, they're thinking about you know the COVID-19 task force. They're thinking about the Paris Climate Accord and World Health Organization and you know all the things that the president-elect has been talking about over the last um, few few days. And what they're trying to figure out is how to accomplish the goals that they have in front of them, the objectives they know they have to hit, and all the things that we've talked about, and how to sift through what's coming in that may or may not be useful. So in part, we, we created a process for tagging and accepting all of the reports and ideas that were coming through the door so that we would have access to them. And then there was a very organized meeting process that was put in place so that we could talk to people. Because we, the, the same time, what you don't want to do is look at everyone that has supported the campaign who's enthusiastic about the Biden administration but in in addition to that, and even most importantly, all the expertise that sits on the on the other side of those doors and outside of government, you don't want to say, thank you so much, see you later, never. But you've got to be able to organize that in a way that you can either access it later on, or um, you can meet with people in an orderly fashion and in a way that helps you to uh, put that information and synthesize that information into the the process of policymaking, planning, executive order drafting, et cetera, that's underway. So that process was also put in place for us. And I would imagine that the Biden-Harris transition team is, is doing much the same. But the other thing I would just say to people who are writing those documents is, you know, don't, don't sit by the phone and wait for a call the next day. Uh, draft them in a way that extremely busy people can look at them, see what's there, see what might be useful, particularly in these early weeks, months, and then be able to to move forward. It's just, it's an enormous task in a very short amount of time. Yeah, that's that's wisely put. I've, I've advised the same thing, that they just don't have the capacity to digest detailed multi-page documents and write something in a way that actually helps them do their job as opposed to tell them how to do their job. So I'm sure that you're inundated with people that are calling you and say, how do I get a job? In fact, we've done, I don't know, 35 podcasts and 
prior to the election, the top podcasts that were listened to were kind of Jim Baker, Ken Burns, Chris Christie. Now, Ken Burns is still the number one, but the number two is how to survive a vet. And number three is how to get a job administration with two former PPO directors. So what are you advising people in terms of how to get their names in, what to do and what not to do? Well, the first thing that I tell people is, look, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris have been in government for some time. There are a number of people that they've worked with, that they trust, and people who have significant expertise have served on the campaign, are serving in the transition. And not everybody serving the transition plans to or wants to go into the administration. But there's a huge community of people that fall in that category. And a lot of those people are going to get jobs uh, very, very early on and with good reason. So if you've never worked (laughs) for President-elect Biden or Vice President-elect Harris, you haven't been involved in the campaign, you haven't been involved in the transition, and maybe you've never even been to worked in Washington, you may not be in that first wave of people that's going to be looked at for a job. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means, you know, understand there are a lot of people with expertise standing in line in front of you and a big demand. In addition to that, what I've also said to people is look for or identify those who are doing personnel to be able to share your information with, or those on the outside, whether they're it's you know a caucus of members of Congress um, or others that have a relationship with the campaign and with the transition and are probably gathering names. They're putting together their list that they want to share with the transition. And that's another opportunity to put your information in a place and in a format that it will be received and that it will be processed. I also tell people that if you don't get a call in the first few months, for the very reasons I mentioned a few uh, a minute ago, it doesn't mean that you'll never get a call because I know through the years that I worked in the White House, you know, I watch presidential personnel process names, but they are getting thousands upon thousands upon thousands of resumes. Um, so it will take a while, even if you are are quite qualified, uh, before they may turn to to your information. Now, what about the issue of beautiful, perfect policy? and the ability to sell it. So you mentioned Phil Shalero. He's a good friend of mine. He's Honestly, he's one of the most talented people I've ever met in my professional life. So I'm sure that during the transition or in the White House, you came up with incredible, beautiful, perfect policy ideas. And you went to Phil and you said, how do I, let's do this, Phil, let's push this. And he looked at you and said, that's the craziest idea. It'll never sell. What planet are you on? So did that ever happen? Well, Phil, as we both know, is far more diplomatic than that. <laughs> <laughs> he would let you down easily, I guess, right? Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I think in I can think of an instance where Phil may have been one of the few people in the White House, uh, along with the president, when I had an idea or believed that we could move a big piece of policy and other people were going, I don't know about that. And Phil said, we're going to give it a run. And we did. And we did. <laughs> um, it's uh, the largest reform of the higher education 
process that had taken place in, in generations. And I give credit to Phil's, you know, that he's got a brain for chess um, and being able to move the pieces around the board. But I think to your your big question, the beautiful, amazing piece of policy that doesn't have a chance. One of the things that I believed I, I learned working for Senator Kennedy was that the best policy processes often begin with people putting lots of ideas on the table. And some of them are, to your point, wacky. <laughs> but there's the germ of something good and interesting and important there. I mean, because you've got people sitting around the table in all seriousness who have lots of years of experience. And it is the process of running the process that refines those ideas um, and engaging not only with the policy people, but with the legislative affairs people and the political people and the communications team and others so that you get to something that you believe you can push um, that that has a snowball's chance uh, of getting over the finish line. And that is, I think, the beauty of of that of that process, but it does begin with people being being creative, um, looking at the challenges and the problems, and being creative. Let me ask you this: You do all this prep work in the campaign, then you do the prep work in the transition. How much of the work that you did in the transition was actually relevant to your job in your first year, and how much you never touched, you never saw, and it was just not relevant? Most of the vast majority, in fact. I would say almost all of the work I did in the transition was relevant because we won the election beginning of November. Before Thanksgiving, I was tapped to be the director of the Domestic Policy Council, and we were off and running and planning the Recovery Act and staffing the the DPC. You know, doing that, doing that work, working on that. Public National Service Bill, the Kennedy Serve America Act, working on the CHIP reauthorization. So it was it was highly, highly relevant. And, you know, that also makes me think about this point in time when we've got a COVID-19 crisis that was already heinous and has now almost just, it's just spun out of control. And it feels as though there's no one with their hand on the tiller, probably because there is no one, meaning the president, current president with their hand on the tiller. And the importance right now, for example, of the Biden team being able to meet with those at DOD and those at HHS on vaccine development and distribution. I mean, that's something even as we go through this period where the current president will not agree that President-elect Biden is, in fact, President-elect Biden. The nation, the healthcare of the nation, the, our national economy hang in the balance, and this vaccine is critical to that. So at the very least, at the very least, those teams should be able to meet with folks at DOD and HHS to do planning and work around that so that that can be executed seamlessly and uh in its most efficient form. You know, you hit on the most important issue in this whole debate over ascertainment, which has become a political football, unfortunately. But what's not political is exactly what you said. The American people would want the Biden team to be working with those folks to get the vaccine out to 300 million people. That's not a policy issue. It's a logistics issue. It's 
I want to get that in my daughter's arm. She has asthma. And, you know, the it's crazy. We should get that going. And that's why this ascertainment issue, which has become political, is actually substantive and important so that the teams can work together. So let me ask you this. When you were in office, the Democrats had somewhere between 59 and 60 seats in the Senate. Uh, it looks like Biden possibly, maybe even likely, depending on the outcome of the Georgia elections, could be facing a Republican Senate to start his presidency. You know, how challenging will that be from a policy perspective and how will that change the president-elect's outlook on what can get done? Well, I'll state the obvious. It's certainly easier when you don't have divided government. And at the same time, people have often spoken about the fact that the president-elect has a long-standing relationship with Mitch McConnell, that he's got long-standing Hill relationships, not only from his days in the White House, but you know, 40 years in the United States Senate. And those things are, are definitely true. And I think they will and could make a difference when there is agreement to move forward or there is, and because there is enough political pressure that says to McConnell, you're going to have to move forward. What I don't think that it means is that Mitch McConnell is going to wake up and, you know, fall out of his bed and (laughs) decide, hey, wait a minute. You know, as opposed to the statement about then-President-elect Obama, I want to make sure he's a one-term president. With President-elect Biden, I want to make sure that he's highly successful. I don't. That's not going to happen. So that means that the road will be challenging. And Mitch McConnell is someone who understands power and his caucus and Washington, D.C., and he will use those tools to the best advantage of of his party. And I think we have witnessed that over the past few years. Now, at the same time, having 59 or 60 Democratic senators also wouldn't mean that it's all smooth sailing. That's what the Obama administration had walking through the door. But as I remind people, 60 Democratic senators are 60 different Democratic senators. Some of them are very liberal. Some of them are quite moderate. Some of them are quite conservative. And there's a lot of negotiating to be done. And I think you, we saw that at the beginning of the Obama administration. But it's certainly, I think, easier than what will be encountered by the Biden-Harris administration. But I also know that those, those individuals, and you look at people like Ron Klain, who will be chief of staff, and others that I know who are, are in the mix. And you've got a lot of experience, a lot of talent, and a lot of knowledge of Washington, D.C. You mentioned Ron Klain. One of the things we've spent a lot of time on with the Biden transition team is the issue of post-election integration. So you have the campaign, you have the transition team, and then you start to get people that are designated for senior positions. And it's three power centers that may or may not work together. I think the Biden team has done the best job of any transition team ever of figuring this out. I give them enormous credit. But there were some tensions when the 
folks were named in Obama. I've talked to them. And, you know, Rom came in, you had the transition people, you had the campaign people, you know, what lessons learned do you remember? What would you advise in terms of integrating those three different kind of power centers to create a smooth transition internally? Well, I think the, to create as much seamlessness as possible, that starting to exercise that muscle as early as possible is important. Recognizing, and this seems like the obvious, but recognizing that it is the intent of the president-elect that is most important. People have their own relationships. They've got their friends. They've got the people they've worked with for years. But all of that has to fall aside and take a backseat away. Maybe it's not even a backseat. It has to go in the trunk. And the focus has to be on who the president-elect wants in those positions, what the president-elect wants to do. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be healthy debate, and there should be healthy debate. That's why you've got a team of senior people there that hopefully come from different perspectives and different backgrounds. But that has to be front of mind. And as I said, that the creation of that muscle memory very, very early so that people understand and learn how we're going to work together. Speaking of diverse backgrounds, in the history of the United States, We've had 59 elections, and we will soon have our 46th president. I think I have this right, but there are five women of color that have served at the top levels of the White House. You, Condoleezza Rice, Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett, and Alexis Herman. Five in the history of the United States. So that's a distinction that I hope you and your family and everybody is proud of, and and it's amazing. So, but are you kind of bummed or even a little angry that Senator Harris has kind of pushed you out of the way and no longer have that distinction? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way before, um, and I I think about those women and I think about you know colleagues like like Mona Sutphin and and others, and what an amazing group of women to consider to be peers. And I, I would venture to say that to a person, we would all say that this is one of the proudest moments for each of us as women and women of color. And I, as a student of history, I look at it and I think, it is poetic um, that women of color, and I think through my my tradition of being an African American woman, there have built and built and built on each other's work and have supported each other through that process. And that there is a history even before women had the right to vote, and we're celebrating the hundredth anniversary of the Nineteenth Amendment before black women had the right to vote, um, were considered full citizens, that there is a history of political engagement and activism from anti-lynching campaigns to suffrage to civil rights and for so many other issues that is a leitmotif 
that plays behind the careers that you mentioned. And to see Kamala Harris standing there that night and accepting the congratulations of the crowd when the election had been called was just one of the proudest moments that I I have ever had. And she's an extraordinary person, an extraordinary leader, extraordinary woman, a sorority sister. Um, <laughs> and I am... I could not be more excited. And I will say, also say this, a colleague of mine said to me that when Vice President-elect Harris was speaking that Saturday night, that she was watching TV with her daughter and who was eight. And she walked, her daughter walked up to the TV, like right up to the TV screen and was just staring at Vice President-elect Harris. And when she started talking about little girls and their expectations and what they should expect for themselves. She said her daughter turned around and looked at her and said, she's speaking to me. And she ran back and sat on the sofa and just was enwrapped listening to Vice President-elect Harris. And I, I, I think about that for all little girls of all races and little boys and grown-up men and women and say, this is an, an extraordinary moment a first that can't be the last, and I could not be more happy. Well said. I obviously asked you tongue in cheek. I'm reminded that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded that my late father-in-law, who a uh, wonderful human being, died of brain cancer, but right before he died, he was able to vote for Barack Obama as the first African American president. And my father, who grew up in very modest circumstances in Wyoming, their parents were refugees. He is now 86, and he has said he never thought he would see this in his lifetime. So it truly is a historic moment, and one made possible by the work of people like you. So, Melody Barnes, thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, and most importantly, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you so, so much. This has been a real, real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be with you today. And thanks for your work with us all year, actually, too. So you've, you've been a great help. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. All for good reason and good cause. Thank you. Thank you. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.